Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point. Observers say her future is bright. Here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Now here's Laura Curran. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It still gives me goosebumps. You recognize that 2001 Space Odyssey. With all this talk of AI, I keep thinking of Hal (laughs) taking over. Um, And it also reminds me of a recent New York Times op-ed that uh, was, was quite alarming. Quote, we have summoned an alien intelligence. We don't know much about it, except that it is extremely powerful and offers us bedazzling gifts, but could also hack the foundations of our civilization. We'll get to that in a little bit. I'll talk to a tech expert about how AI is becoming more entrenched in our lives. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. We'll talk to Adam Kovacevic. Excuse me, Kavakovich, about that shortly. Um, also, we look into why it's more expensive to build in New York than almost anywhere else in the country. And a conversation about the polemicist, intellectual, iconoclast Christopher Hitchens, who went after everyone from Mother Teresa to the Clintons and would have turned 74 this week if he were still alive. Uh, today, before we get into all of that, To all of the children of Abraham, this is a special day and week and month of joy and community and renewal. Of course, we're celebrating Easter Sunday today. We're right in the middle of Passover week, and we're right in the middle of Ramadan, uh, a Muslim holiday of prayer, fasting, and reflection. And I don't know about you, but there's something that comes alive in me in the springtime. I feel in the winter the spark dims, the flame is down, but it comes back up and I start to feel more optimistic. I wonder if you feel that way too. Um, so all of these religions, of course, created by human beings, or some may say by God, uh, but practiced by humans, will AI change or destroy any of that? Um, I want to bring in the CEO and founder of Chamber of Progress, Adam Kavakovich. Have I got that right, Adam Kavakovich? That's right. Thanks All right. for having me. You got it. Uh, Chamber of Cro- Progress, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of like a chamber for the tech industry, a uh, mission to make sure that all Americans benefit from this, this ever-evolving, quickly evolving world of tech. That's right. I'm a, I'm a tech optimist. Uh, and I'm generally technology has benefited uh, society or communities for the better, but it doesn't mean that we should have like untrammeled technology, that we should have no rules, no regulation. I don't think anybody wants that. But I do think that there are uh, countless examples of, of technology having made life better for us. And so I, I'm in a hopeless uh, 
technology optimist. And you're also a former Google exec, so you've been in the business. You know, you know what it's all about. So, you know, the Times goes on, that op-ed that I was referring to goes on to say that AI could rapidly eat the whole of human culture, everything we have produced over thousands of years, digest it, and begin to gush out a flood of new cultural artifacts, not just school essays, but political speeches, ideological manifestos, holy books for new cults, new religions. Um, Also warning, by 2028, the U.S. presidential race might no longer be run by humans. Is this a true danger, potential danger, uh, they say maybe, you know, about 10% chance of this potentially happening. Or is this just chicken little clucking about how the sky is falling? Well, I think the way that I like to think about it is that kind of whenever you have any new technology emerge, um, there tend, the first stage tends to be kind of a hype uh, peak where people talk about the new technology as if it's going to change everything. It's going to you know, cure cancer. It's going to transform human existence. But there's generally uh, kind of a lot of positive hype. And then the next phase, what happens uh, usually is that someone abuses the technology. And this always happens. Every technology developed for, for good purposes gets abused by someone. Um, once something starts getting abused, then there are always some voices who say, we should chuck this thing overboard. We should halt its development. We should halt it in its tracks. And, um, and, and, I, and then I think what happens many, many times is that once you get past that peak of hype or and sort of the pit of, um, of criticism, you move towards a phase where really the new technology, you figure out what it's good for, what it's not good for. You set clear rules of the road. Sometimes that's through regulation. Sometimes it's more through like standards and norms. Mm-hmm. And we just live with it. We incorporate it in daily life. I think that's closer to the experience we'll have. I tend not to believe sort of the, the the peak of hype, nor like the pits of criticism either. Right. And, and AI really is already starting to become braided into our lives. If you use Siri or Alexa or you play interactive video games, if you wear an Apple Watch or a Garmin to track your fitness, uh, and if you use social media, you're already living with AI. That's exactly right. I think this is, you know, we have a new phase of what's called generative AI, and we can talk more about that, where sort of new new uh, chat answers and new images and movies are being created out of sort of whole cloth. But you're absolutely right. I mean, just to use a practical example, for anyone who uses Gmail, Gmail for several years now has ha- had a feature, I think they call it Smart Compose, where when you start, tar- when you start typing in Gmail, um, sometimes G- Gmail will suggest words to you based yeah. on millions upon billions of either other emails that they've seen and scanned. They just have learned how people tend to write and talk. And darn it, if that's not right exactly what I want to say a lot of the time, right? I know. That's, that's artificial intelligence, right? It's a time saver. And so I think, like, to me, that's an example of an artificial intelligence application that um, maybe when people first uh, heard about it might have freaked some people out. But I, now that people have used it, I think people probably view it as, helpful and in some cases just benign. Um, and so I think that like that's what we'll probably end up, a lot of AI applications will be. It'll be these things that sort of, you know, are, help us around sort of the edges, not transform, you know, everything we do. What did you make of that recent open letter by Elon Musk, uh, Steve Wozniak, the founder, one of the co-founders of Apple, Andrew Yang, about a thousand tech leaders wrote an open letter urging uh, quite 
with quite a bunch, a bunch of alarm there, a pause to AI, warning of profound risks to societies, and that the developers are, quote, locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy, deploy ever more powerful digital minds. Uh, what did you make of that pause? Well, to some, yeah, to some extent, I think I understand the what I guess would be, I think for every sort of peak of hype, it's healthy to have some skepticism. And so it's health, it's healthy for people to voice worries, concerns, criticism. I think that makes a ton of sense. I don't think it's realistic, and it's really not realistic at all, for there to be a complete pause in AI development. One of the things that I think may may have been going on with some of the you know companies and organizations who signed that letter is that they – they're companies that maybe want to take a more cautious approach to AI development. Maybe they, they're behind. And, you know, I don't think that's a good reason to stop or slow down. Having said that, I do think that these applications being experiment, you know, being, being let loose in the wild are, they're really kind of almost educating us about like, what, what are the potential perils? What are the situations that we have to guard against, again, through rules, norms, regulation, that's good. I mean, I think for as much testing as goes in goes into uh, Chat GPT or Bard or Dolly or any of these new tools, sometimes it's it's impossible. Most times, it's impossible to know how people will use them and how people might abuse them too. And so, I think that like these use the, the way that people are using and in some cases abusing the services are just educating us about where we might need to have rules in place in the future. I'm Laura Curran. I'm speaking with Adam Kovakovich. He is CEO and founder of Chamber of Progress, and we're talking on Cut to the Chase about AI. So what about this whole idea that AI will be running campaigns, maybe producing religions, uh, really eroding at the foundations of our very human civilization? You know, I tend to believe that we human beings will always try, will always naturally find a way for our humanity to be preserved, right, mm-hmm. really in the face of, uh, you know, just we, we don't want to turn everything over to bots, right? We live, we love, we have personal relationships, you know, we, we, we crave in-person contact and you know, and I and so I just I think that that will prevail. I, I, I'm thinking about the fact, for example, I remember years ago, a friend told me that his daughter grew really tired of going to high school parties where everybody was on their phone. Oh yeah. And the the girl on her own decided to host a party, but the rule was you had to put your phone in the basket, and not because they were worried about safety or anything like that, just because they wanted to actually spend time with each other. <laughs> And this is to me, and this was not an adult who had forced this idea on the teenagers, by the way, right? Yeah, I love that it's coming from the kids. Exactly, and but the fact that it was coming from the kids kind of tells me that this is this is a real human instinct that we, you know, when when we say things, well, before the machines will take over, it's like no, we really, I think most of us really um, are are very, you know, we're protective of our humanity and and. And in all of the things that make us human and not machines, and I think that we will continue to protect that. It doesn't say you shouldn't be on guard, but I just – I think that is true. I think holding on to our humanity is incredibly important. I shouldn't – you shouldn't even have to say that. But because, you know, AI some, sometimes comes across, at least to me, as sort of the ultimate sociopath, exploiting mm-hmm. our weakness, 
uh, while being able to fake these intimate relationships with us, predicting what we're going to say, knowing how we're going to feel, knowing what will trigger us or make us passionate about something. That, I don't know if that's something I want to give over to a non-human kind of intelligence. Well, the reality is that we've had this in less sophisticated forms too, right? You know, you think about like email scams, right? The email that says, you know, I'm a Nigerian prince and I need your yeah. This has been going – that's not an AI thing. But like why, why do those scams like that proliferate? Because they work on at least, you know, 1% of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so I do feel like you can you – know, you're, you're never going to be able to eradicate every single abuse – potential abuse of the technology. That's just impossible. What you want to try to do is reduce that as much as possible, mitigate, but literally any tool that can be created and is largely used for good purposes can be used for ill. ill. And we we just have to be clear-eyed about that and say, okay, well, let's try to minimize uh, the amount of that happening. And you're right about every new technology gets the chicken littles all going. Uh, When I remember my mom was telling me when comic books were a big thing, Adults were very worried that it would ruin and degrade these children's lives and, you know, make them become delinquents. And uh, I think now parents would be very happy if their kids actually picked up an actual comic book and read it. (laughs) Right. That's right. Well, this is you're absolutely right. I mean, there's so many examples of this. Generations after generation have kind of techno panics, moral panics about new technology and and people just adapt. And again, I do think, you know, and, and do find ways to make sure that um, that there are limits around kind of, you know, where the technology ends and their humanity begins. So when chat GPT was st- first came out and started making a lot of news, I of course went on to it. And it was funny because it asked me, uh, six times in a row to verify that I am human. <laughs> the robot is one wa- wanting uh, to know that I'm actually human. So I had to check the box six times. And then I asked, uh, it about me and mm-hmm. it got it really wrong. It said, I'm still county executive in Nassau. It said, my birthday is in March. It's in December. It said, I went to Yale. Um, I wish. It said, mm-hmm. I went to Columbia Grad School of Journalism, which is could have been true. I actually got a job at the Daily News the same day I was accepted into the program. So, of course, I took the job. Uh, right. It says, I grew up in bald when I moved there in my 20s. So I guess we really still do need those human beings. Everybody, even a robot, needs a fact checker and an editor. That's right. Uh, people have said this, that sometimes chat GPT of these tools can be confidently wrong. And, um, you know, it's interesting. And I and, and so I do think that that um, things like that will will I, I think it will be good if we all become even savvier information consumers. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so deep fakes already exist and we'll see more deep fake videos, deep fake photos. How how are we how are we how will we be able to tell that a photo is deep is a deep fake? Well, gosh, I mean there are definitely people working on should there be watermarks, should there be some kind of um, verification to prove something's real. There are people working on that, but at the base at the base level, we're all going to have to just apply that gut check of, gosh, do I think this is real? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and is, is this could this possibly be real and 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 you know this this won't be real. Now I think that is definitely a challenge to, you know, what I would say is like almost our shared sense of what's fact. There, that that's going to be an issue, right? I mean, we already have um, a lot of division in this country about yeah. kind of you know the way part you know, partisans of both sides sort of see the news and see facts. And is that a fact? Is that, is that true? Did it really happen? And you know, it, it is. 
probably true that deep fakes will um, exacerbate that problem. Um, so the old adage of don't always believe yeah. what you read or see holds yeah. true more now than ever. Adam Kavakovich of the Chamber of Progress, I want to thank you so much for coming on and having a nice, calm conversation about AI. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. All right. You got it. Next, Cranes, New York, calls it New York's stupidest law. And some say it's one of the reasons it's so expensive to build in New York State. Next on Cut to the Chase. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. If you want to take us on the go, download the WABC Radio app or listen to us on WABCRadio.com. I am your host, Laura Curran. Okay, so Cranes, New York, calls it New York's stupidest law. The New York Daily News says the scaffold law drives up the cost of construction, and the Post, New York Post, says it's long past time to for New York to do what 49 other states have done, and that is scrap the scaffold law. So what is the scaffold law? It was enacted in 1885 to pr- protect construction workers, so it has a great intent. Uh, but what's the problem? I'm talking now to Tom Stebbins from the Lawsuit Reform Alliance of New York. He has been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist. He's been on Fox and NPR talking about this issue. Tom, welcome to Cut to the Chase. Great to be with you, Laura. So New York is the only state to have this scaffold law. What is it exactly? So what the scaffold law says is that if there is a gravity-related injury on a work site, it is the fault of the contractor and the property owner under almost any circumstances. So if the employee is intoxicated, if the employee violates safety standards, doesn't tie off, doesn't put it, none of that matters. So unlike any other part of our civil justice system, whether in New York or in any other state or country, go to court and really plead your case and apportion fault. Law in New York essentially says the fault is automatic, and that's above and beyond workers' compensation. So workers collect workers' compensation, and when workers' comp was put into place, most states got rid of their versions of the scaffold law, and they said, all right, everybody's going to get paid on workers' comp. But New York kept it around. And then fast forward many, many years, attorneys really realized, oh, my gosh, this is a goldmine. We can sue everybody for negligence all the time, even if there isn't negligence. And so that's why if you're ever you know, watching TV in the daytime, you're going to see a lot of ads for personal injury lawyers about worksite accidents and see people in hard hats because they can't lose. That's the way the law is designed in New York. You know, it's interesting. As I was preparing to speak with you, of course, I did a Google search. And uh, when you put in scaffold law, I got a lot of personal injury attorneys' websites come up. Your Google will never be the same. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Lord. What am I in for? (laughs) 
So obviously we want to protect workers, uh, but it sounds like what you are concerned about is this absolute liability standard, whereas if the worker was drunk or refused to wear the personal protective safety equipment or whatever it is, it will still be the boss's fault. And that's why this law does not actually make people more safe. The additional liability and removing any sort of responsibility for safety from the worker actually makes people less safe. And intoxicated workers or workers on drugs exactly highlights why that is. An intoxicated worker is a less safe worker, not just for himself or herself, but those other workers around them. And so data actually shows that when Illinois, for example, got rid of this law, their injury rate and their fatality rate went down. Hmm. So it seemed to actually improve safety. And that's because, as we talked about, you know, people, if they're intoxicated, they're less safe. And then there's also just abuse. The call we get most often in our office is a small business owner who has somebody first day on the job. They get injured. Nobody saw it. It's a, it's a soft tissue injury. So, you, you know, there's nothing provable or broken. And they want you know, $500,000 or a million dollars. And because the way law is structured, there's a lot of that abuse that's happening in New York. And what that does is drive up the costs for everything construction related, whether that's infrastructure and the train that you take every day, or if you're driving around, the bridges and tunnels that you drive through. All of those things are more expensive in New York because of the way we do liability under the scaffold law. I'm Laura Kern. I'm speaking with Tom Stebbins from the Lawsuit Reform Alliance. And we're talking about how the scaffold law makes living and building in New York really more expensive than anywhere in the country. So you talk about bridges, tunnels, uh, I think of schools. You know, there's a lot of money. How much money, you know, how, how does this translate to the average person? who, you know, what if I pay my school taxes or I'm paying my bridge and tunnel taxes or whatever they are, does this affect my tax bill? Absolutely. I mean, nobody commissions more construction than our government and our government entities. So the School Construction Authority is a great example. The School Construction Authority looked to get a new insurance policy, and it was going to cost over $200 million for the School Construction Authority's policy. And yet they talked to their colleagues in New Jersey, and it was a fraction of that. And they said jokingly that they could bust all the kids from New York to New Jersey and still save money, given how much it was costing them. So whether it's schools, whether it's bridges, the estimate on the Tappan Zee Bridge was an additional $200 million. The estimate on the Hudson Gateway project was a north of $180 million. This is real money that could be spent on far better things than liability. And in case you're wondering, is this in fact the law? Well, projects that span a border, so a New York to New Jersey project, the liability costs, the lawsuit costs on the New York side of that same bridge Hmm. are double what they are on the New Jersey side. And that is precisely because of the scaffold law, which is critically does not necessarily have to do with scaffolds. 
I don't know how it got that name, uh, but it's simply just for construction liability. You know, it's funny because it's it's gravity-related injuries. Well, everything everything we do is (laughs) gravity-related. So yeah, and a contractor joked to me said, "So if it happens on Earth, it's my fault." (laughs) That's about right. That's about right. Unless it's basically fire, um, then then yeah, it's it's going to be a scaffold law claim. Actually, there was recently a case where somebody was shocked. And typically electrocution or anything like that is not scaffold law, but then they fell. And so they sued, of course, for the fall, not for the shock, because under the fall, they could collect no matter what, whereas the shock was clearly their fault. And so Hmm. because they forgot to turn off the wire. And so they were able to essentially collect for the fall, which is going to be their fault, even though the shock that caused the fall was their fault. If that makes any sense. <laughs> it, it makes it make. Yes, I can. Unfortunately, I can see it. Uh, <laughs> good, good. I'm talking to Tom Stebbins of the Lawsuit Reform Alliance. I'm Laura Curran on Cut to the Chase. We're talking about the scaffold law. Now, it's interesting what you say about New Jersey, because we all know that the Northeast is a very expensive place. You know, the equipment's more expensive. The labor is more expensive. But you're talking New York and New Jersey. We're right next to each other. And yet there is such a stark difference in the cost of construction because of this one law. Yeah. So and it's a competitive disadvantage. And we see people, mm-hmm. businesses, small businesses that have businesses on the borders, and they're losing business to the people on the other side of the border who are not paying the insurance and oftentimes crossing the border without telling their insurer so that they can take that business at a far less cost and do the projects and take them away from New York businesses. So, Tom. This is, I, you know, I got involved in politics 10 years ago. This was an issue back then, and nothing's changed. How do you move the needle on this? Yeah, I think it's so important for everyone to understand how this affects them, regardless of your policies, right? If, if you're more Republican, you're worried about taxes, well, this is a drive on taxes. If you're worried about affordable housing, this is limiting our ability to make affordable housing. If you're worried about transportation, school construction, anything that requires building, well, that is something that the scaffold law dramatically impacts and dramatically adds to cost. So I am hoping that more and more people really learn. What are your, what are the headwinds? Who's the opposition here? Well, it's those same personal injury lawyers that you see advertising all the time. Mm. Governor Cuomo once called them the most powerful political force in Albany. And that's because they give massive amounts to state government to keep this in place. And they get these multi-million dollar payouts that you read about that you that they often are touting in their ads. And then they take a portion of that and they're sure to drive that back into the pockets of the Albany politicians to keep this in place. Where is Lake? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I think you and I were going the same place. Critically, too, the unions have been opposed to reform, and it's unfortunate that they are because, again, the data shows that this makes things less safe. It also makes things more expensive, and by making it more expensive, it's driving contractors to non-union labor. Mm. And so if the unions really want to make sure that they're getting those jobs, anything that they can do to reduce the cost of those jobs, is something that they should really support. And fixing the scaffold law would absolutely reduce the cost of those jobs and hopefully get more people to use union labor. So we hope that the unions will come around. Unfortunately, they've been opposed to this for so long that I think it's hard for them to to shift gears. Hmm. And 
the trial lawyers are constantly giving them money. If you go to any union event, you know, the clam bake is sponsored. The top five platinum sponsors are all personal injury lawyers because they know that that support is so important. And so they pay for it in those kinds of sponsorships. Interesting. You know, I've got a lot of friends in uh, the building trade, so I will absolutely be speaking with them about this. And, you know, I think what would be most persuasive is the fact that this actually keeps workers safer than uh, than what's what's in place now. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, and the data really shows that. And of course, they don't ever want to have any sort of liability on them. But if you, you know, one, one of my, I used to work in construction, I used to develop wind farms. And a union mm. person once told me I spend 95% of my time protecting 5% of my guys, yeah. right? And I think any union le- leader would tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, and so why are we putting together policies where the guy that shows up drunk at work or high on the job is protected if he causes an injury? That's just not good policy, and I know that they their mission is to protect that 5%, but at a certain point, if somebody is, is intoxicated on the job, you know that's the kind of thing that we have to crack down on, and it's not helping anybody, and it's costing everybody. You know, interesting that you worked on the wind farms because that's actually a huge growth industry right now and great for the building trades. So that's yeah, there's an interesting part of the reason I now. got involved in this. I was building wind farms in Pennsylvania and New York, and my New York project insurance was like five times more than my Pennsylvania project. And I said, what's going on here? And they said, well, it's this thing called the scaffold law. I said, hold on. We're not using any scaffolds on a wind farm construction site, right? It's all bulldozers and cranes. That's pretty much it. And they said, no, it just imposes liability and it adds all these costs. And I said, you know what? Okay, I am about to send a $200 million renewable energy project to Pennsylvania and not New York because of this law. I need to go to Albany. I need to tell people, and we need to fix it. Like with everything else, like with everything else, follow the money. It's uh, the way you're the way you're telling it. It's the personal injury firms giving money to the campaigns for state legislators, and that's why this thing is still here, driving up the cost, making it more expensive, and driving away the projects and the jobs. Tom Stebbins, I want I want to thank you so much for joining me on Cut to the Chase. Laura, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, next on Cut to the Chase, I will speak with Alicia Elisa Maldonado about Christopher Hitchens. This was the land that it worked by hand. It was the dream of an upright man. There was a room that was filled with love. It was a love that I was proud of. This was a life for the life that it planned. On the love, the same old love in the house that Jack Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Cut to the Chase. Cut to the Chase. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Yes, I really, really, really don't like him. My little book is, in part, is an address. I hope it's got a general interest, but in part, it's a reproach to the American left, to the American liberals, for falling for him and for defending him when... Apart from anything else, he is an extremely and always has been a very extremely conservative person politically, but also because of his his corrupt and selfish and, I would say, um, mean, almost psychopathically deceitful tendencies. 
So that was the voice of Christopher Hitchens talking about Bill Clinton when he was plugging his book called No One Left to Lie to, The Triangulations of William Jefferson Clinton. You may remember Christopher Hitchens. He was on Hardball. He was on TV. He did debates with Sean Hannity and Al Sharpton and everyone in between. Uh, uh, he was a, a really independent thinker, master debater, prolific writer, wrote for Vanity Fair, The Nation, wrote tons of books, prodigious drinker. <laughs> and he managed to offend just about everybody. Love debate. Uh, you can find his debates on YouTube, actually. Um, always well prepared and always withering. Uh, he was actually hired by the Vatican to be a devil's advocate, which was a real thing. They've since, since done away with it when Mother Teresa was to be beatified. And they asked him, they actually contracted with him to give the devil's position. Why should she not be beatified? And the result was a really quite scathing book called Missionary Position, Mother Teresa in Theory and Practice. Perhaps not appropriate to talk about in Easter, but it, but it's even if you are a devout Catholic or a very religious person, I think it's just wor- worth reading as an intellectual exercise. Um, I find myself missing Christopher Hitchens a lot these days. He died at 62 of esophageal cancer in 2011. So he would have been 74 this week. He's someone that I met when I was in high school. I guess he's about 20 years older. Was it would have been about 20 years older than me. Um, I met him when I was a teenager living in DC and my mom and her husband were in the same social circle as Christopher Hitchens. So he would come to our house for dinner parties and that sort of thing. And I have to confess, I had a little bit of a schoolgirl crush on him. He was a sort of a very charming combination of dissolute and smart, and funny, and fearless. Um, Anyway, with all of this in mind, it is fitting that I bring in Alicia Maldonado. She is Communications Director for the Human Rights Foundation, uh, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit that promotes and protects human rights, focusing on people living in authoritarian regimes. And the reason I wanted to speak with Alicia uh, and and her connection with Human Rights Foundation is that Christopher's politics evolved through his life. He started out as a young Marxist and ended his life basically defending the war in Iraq and endorsing George W. Bush's reelection. But there was an unchanging through line through his philosophy through the decades, and it was being against the totalitarian on the left and on the right. He wrote, the totalitarian to me is the enemy. The one that's absolute, the one that wants to, con- the, who wants control over the inside of your head. Alicia, welcome to Cut to the Chase. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, what is your interest uh, about Christopher Hitchens and, and any interactions you may have had with him? Well, I, I love the way you summed it up. Um, a, just you know, incredibly erudite, charming, as you say. Um, British, I'm, I'm you know, British citizen as well, and so I have that kind of heart connection there, or you know, home connection there. Mm. Um, but also as a journalist and a writer, you know, he just was inimitable. You know, mm-hmm. the ability to to write so clearly is just the dream of any writer and, and any journalist. So I, of course, devoured everything that I could read of his when I was in college. Um, I didn't get to meet him, but. That was not for the lack of trying. And I got his email, and I emailed him out of the blue, and I said, I'm a young journalist. I'm getting ready to graduate. 
I would love to, I would, I want to meet you. I, and he was, I went to school in California at the time and he was um, doing some kind of teaching stand at Stanford, I believe. Mm. And so I said, I'm not far. And I've been practicing my wine drinking and reading and writing. So I'm ready to go. I've gotten up to a bottle. Let's go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, he had just been, he was flying out. And so um, back to the UK. So I missed him that time. And I think I'd emailed back and forth maybe two or three times trying to catch him and was always on the missing end. Uh, so I didn't get to meet him, but I did get to email him and I'll hold on to that. That's something. Oh, that's great. And you also are, you know, along with being communications director, Alicia Maldonado of the Human Rights Foundation, you're also a former journalist. So you were uh, associate or assist, was it assistant editorial page editor at the New York Post? Mm-hmm. Basically an editorial writer. Um, yeah, my whole career has been in journalism. I still consider myself a journalist. Uh, the work that I help, you know, are the folks that we at the HR, <laughs> HRF, sorry, I'm sounding very ineloquent um, today, not in honor of Hitchens at all. Um, You're doing great. Go ahead. Is just, you know, is still trying to get those arguments out there and um, fighting against the regimes that, you know, he so eloquently fought against, you know. I, I, he was one of the, most, the clearest voices against tyranny, and so um, I still get to do that part and have a bunch of experts in, in different regions and different uh, fields who are all dedicated to writing that same thing. So um, in that way, we keep his spirit alive. He is someone who lost a lot of friends along the way. Um, you know, I'm acquaintances with someone who knew him for a very long time who said, you know, I, they fell out with him. They found him to be manipulative and, yes, very charming, but to the point where uh, – it, it almost seemed a little sociopathic. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I never saw that side of him. Uh, but one thing that's absolutely true, he wasn't concerned about making enemies if he felt that, mm. if he if he believed enough in, in the point. And, and, and that's something that I, you know, that sort of brutal honesty is something that I feel we're losing in our talking point world. And I would just love to know, I would love to hear his critique of Biden, of Donald Trump, of everything that's going on. And one thing he said about Trump, and this he said in 1999, so well before Trump ever, you know, became the the political success that he has become. He wrote of Donald Trump in 1999. This is when Trump was expressing interest in running for president as the Reform Party candidate, you know, the Ross Perot party. Uh, And I thought, you know, it's so true how he captured Donald Trump. He wrote, quote, in many ways, he embodies his country because uh, because this election cycle is now so absurd and so much up for grabs that it is unwise to exclude anything, meaning Trump. He is a man who hates to be alone, who needs approval and reinforcement, who talks a better game than he plays, who is crude, hyperactive, emotional and optimistic. And that's kind of a perfect summary of this of this uh, character, <laughs> Donald Trump. Yeah, well, he was always sort of, you know, insightful that way. Um, I think someone who's always watching and always thinking critically can kind of see see ahead in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. I I wish how many times over the years I've said, um, gosh, I wish I could hear what he would say to that right now. I wonder what kind of Sally would be there. But you know, what also he, uh, as you say, he didn't kind of shirk behind his opinions. He let them he let them be known. Um, and I do think that that is kind of missing in the discourse today. And I also think that something that he did was invite 
being challenged. He invited his views. Oh, to be he challenged. loved it. He loved going into the lion's den. He relished and it. I just think that's so lost. Where it's like, if yeah. you think I'm wrong, come. You can come at me, but it's not. But it wasn't necessarily said in a way where, let me call you an idiot, or you know, um, then you must yeah. be this. You know, like the sort of kind of argument that we have today in not a lot at of all. ways. No, where your opinion is discredited if you disagree with one side. Um, he had his position. He held on to it. He, you know, kind of the attitude of, I, if I didn't believe it was right, I wouldn't hold the opinion. He also um, relished speaking about religion, and uh, he would talk to priests. He would talk to rabbis, you know, Al Sharpton, you name it, everyone. So uh, I want to play a little bit of what he said about religion, and we're going to go to cut two, and then we'll talk about it. God is man-made, and it was one of our biggest mistakes. How so? And that we've made a, we've made a self-inflicted wound for ourselves. We've, uh, we've told ourselves we wouldn't have morality if it wasn't for a celestial dictator who can convict us of thought crime, who knows what we're thinking even when we're asleep, and who doesn't leave off with us even when we're dead. In North Korea, you have to praise and thank the Lord and his son all the time. Uh, incessantly, but at least you can die and get out of North Korea, out of the religious and theocratic world. You can't escape. So that's when he's plugging his book. He's speaking to Chris Matthews there on Hardball. You may have recognized his voice. The book was called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, and basically putting God in the position of a totalitarian dictator. And I, I don't want to offend people who are listening. It is Easter Sunday. It is Passover week. It's Ramadan uh, it's a very it's a very important and spiritual day. But I would encourage, even if you strongly disagree with this, and this makes you really angry, read the book. Sharpen your own debating skills. Uh, instead of relying on being offended, uh, how about, you know, the thing that, that, Ant, that, that Christopher Hitchens did was he knew the Bible inside and out. So he could out-debate a lot of these folks, religious folks that he spoke to, because he knew, he pretty much had the whole thing memorized. And, you know, to me, this is a reminder, get into the debate. It's okay. We can disagree, uh, but, it's, it's, you know, disagreement is nothing to be afraid of. Exactly. You know, I, I would say for myself, uh, his position on, you know, faith in Christianity would be one that I disagreed with. But um, as you say, he knew what he was, at least his position, and he, and he knew the talking points of the other side better than the other side often did do. So that's exactly right. Know. So I'm, I'm Laura Curran. I'm speaking with Alicia Maldonado. You're listening uh, to Cut to the Chase. And just a couple of other things. we got to wrap up in a second. But uh, he he really had uh, Vladimir Putin's number. He said this is, you know, obviously he died in 2011. So this is well before the uh, invasion of Ukraine. He said, quote, we will all live to regret Putin's revanchist mafia theocracy. So vengeful mafia theocracy. Well, yeah, mm. that was true. And I also wonder what he would have made of the toppling of statues of, say, Jefferson and Lincoln or renaming schools. Uh, I tend to think he was someone, you know, the other through line in his life was he became an American citizen in 2007. And a consistency was his commitment to enlightenment ideas, reason, secularism, pluralism. And he also said that, quote, those who view the history of America as a narrative of genocide and slavery 
solely, are hopelessly stuck on this reactionary position. And that's these are issues that really resonate now. And Alicia Maldonado, I, I wish he were around. I don't know if it was the smoking and the drinking that did him in so young, but... But it gave a good life. Yes, that's exactly right. And by the way, he did say something interesting about, he said, I need the junky energy that scotch can provide and the intense short-term conversation that nicotine can help supply. Politically incorrect, perhaps, but hey, that's how he felt. Well, now I was at the Post, I wrote this piece um, about the love of smoking um, and how I wasn't going to quite give it up just yet. And I quote him there, you know, as using, as I did in the piece at least, um, cigarette smoking as a barometer for a good or bad time. I think you'd kind of subscribe to that or a drink. You're having a great conversation. Requires two. Cheers to that. Alicia Maldonado, I want to thank you so much. And thank you for the good work that you are doing, promoting and protecting human rights, especially under authoritarian regimes. And uh, I hope I don't offend Christopher Hitchens by saying, God bless you. And thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Cut to the Chase, where the conversation is always robust and we're not afraid of anything. Take care.